Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. With me today is, a, is an old friend and, uh, well, a, a writer, producer, award-winning, uh, everything. Damn, Chip, you're everything. <laughs> but he has a radio it's, it's show. A burden. It's a burden, damn it. <laughs> he's a host on kgo uh radio and uh well i i know him from uh god comedy in the washington dc area years ago it's a pleasure to have chip franklin with us chip thanks for coming yeah i think it's safely to say decades ago at this point <laughs> it's just years is not really not a fair representation of the time that's passed i think it's more like you can also get into it's like fathoms or whatever the, the <laughs> leagues or those measurements they use in Britain. I think we need one of those. We're twenty yeah, thousand leagues under the sea. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. Anyway, good to see your face, man. Good to see you. Stick around. Uh, we'll uh, pay the bills and we'll be right back. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kerman. With this is uh, Chip Franklin. And Chip, I guess, you know, the, the title of the show is Just Ask the Question. So I, I, want, I wanted to ask you this. You've been in radio for a while. Um, I, 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 you know, I've been putting out a book this fall about the changes in, in uh, broadcasting. You're working on a book on the changes in radio. How has radio changed over the last two or three decades? And is it for the better or for the worse? In your well, that's to be seen. You know, I think that um, every everybody hates change. You know, when you're in the middle of change, it's the end of the world, right? You know, and and, and I had and a date like most that. <laughs> well, if you go back and look, um, when uh, the television came along, you know, and, and it, it blew up, you know, and it was probably in I think some of the first radio te television shows were like in the late '30s, and um, and radio had to survive, and so um, it went to music. And then when FM came along and it was a better sound, it left AM radio with talk, news, and sports. And that and sports, in a lot of ways, really was the beginning of what we're doing now with talk radio. So it kind of propelled it. And I tell you what, my, one of my first great jobs was at WBAL Radio in Baltimore. And I got to meet uh, all my heroes because I would listen to the, the Orioles games at night. I'd been an Orioles fan since the Senators left D.C. So it was, you know, I think that at, at its height... Um, right when Limbaugh really started pushing the envelope, right after the Fairness Doctrine was officially put to bed, which was a weird construct from the beginning. Everybody calls for the Fairness Doctrine to come back, but it, w it still really didn't have teeth. It was never really about getting both sides heard. Um, so, you know, the idea that, that there's been a fundamental shift, I think it, it's the same shift that's affected every, every aspect of media, right? Right. The, the immediacy, the, the, the availability, um, how we monetize it on our end of the content creators. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's like anything. The people, can you say what? the consolidation has hurt your business though? I mean, I look at where I grew up, 
15, 16 radio stations used to have 15 or 16 different owners. Now they have one. Well, you know what it's like. It's like if you put um, 10,000 people on the Titanic, right? I mean, you know, it, it's like these huge, if we were, if, if our industry were a huge ocean liner, you get greedy, right? You put too many people on there and then you can't sustain yourself. And I think that's what happened. Um, they were allowed, deregulation allowed uh, the, the big media giants to kill themselves. Uh, they just took on too much. And then when the first recession hit in 2000, and then the one in 08 and whatever we're dealing with now, I think, you know, I mean, mostly it's cost cutting and trying to figure out what, what they do with these properties. And it's not even so much talk. Most of these huge talk uh, conglomerates, these radio stations, they're burdened with these FM signals that they paid a lot more for that nobody's listening to. I mean, people, you know, people still listen. But, you know, I mean, when I get in the car, I listen to MSNBC on Sirius sometimes or my own station if there's something I really want to catch up on. But I want to get more information and I don't want to get it from where I work. So I listen to that and, and I bring that to the table later. I mean, it and it's funny. I, I, I think when you ask about changes, I think we're still in the middle of a great one and nobody really knows where it's going. Yeah, I, I, my concern, though, and I and I mention it in my book, is that consolidation is ruining the uh, ability to choose. It's giving you the appearance of choice, but you really have one over one or two overlords that are supplying all the content. I think it drives down salary. But you're inside the beast, and you're writing a book about it. So uh, tell me about what your book is about. Well, it kind of chronicles um, the, the beginning, my beginnings, and talk radio, and and. You know, as just, I you know, no kid, no six-year-old kid says, someday I want to grow up and be a talk show host, right? It's like one of these, <laughs> it's one of these, you know, you want to be a cop, you want to be president, you want to be a baseball star, right? But um, as you get older and, you know. Um, I want to talk know, to people uh, on the radio all day long because I have dude, a great FM radio DJ voice. No, I was not, yeah, I was not drawn to it and I was, um, but I, I'll be honest with you, you know, when I got into it, I was seduced by the early, uh, I mean, I got in the same time Limbaugh did, or a little bit earlier, actually. And um, and I've been, you know, I've never had a job without a microphone. So I've always been superbly confident until I got to talk radio. Because um, even though it's not quite as anal as sports, I mean, you go on sports talk radio and you get a stat wrong, people won't talk to you for five years, right? <laughs> uh, if that were true in our case, geez, you know, but most of the people in... in, in you know, so I started out, and you kind of go through conservative talk radio, and it's incredibly seductive. And I'm not talking about social conservatives. I'm talking about Buckley conservatism, you know, right. George Will conservatism, yeah, right? Real conservatism. Yeah, right. The idea, you know, at the heart of it is that, you know, a more uh, a, a leaner, more uh, responsive government is better than a bloated thing that tries to be <clears throat> everything to everyone, right? And the, ah, you know, But the rub there is what do you trim and what do you – and usually it's – Of course. The, the conservatism part, I, I, I never bought because it was always trimming social programs, but stoking the military. So. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, you can you can go back and, and, and find Democrats that were, had a hand in that as well. I mean, well, I think, no kidding. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I think, though, I think what happened was. I told you, one's a party of no heart, and one's a party of no head. Let's <laughs> Yeah, I and and they both they both can wear that that jersey, you know. I mean, back yeah. and forth. Um, you know, you remember it was Barbara Lee was the only person in Congress who voted against the Iraq War. One congressman yes. from the, my district here in San Francisco. But I think part of part of the whole where we're headed is you know Marshall McLuhan had this really great observation that the medium actually 
changes the content, right? So it and, does. And the way that it's observed, right? So this conversation is much different than if you heard it on my show, which has you know twelve minute little snippets. So we kind of got to get to it. We, you know, it's it's harder to establish that intimacy with people because you're moving, always moving around. You got tell, they got commercials, and you got to hope the audience stays with you for a five minute block, that kind of thing. And so I, I think that you know where we are with you know this ability to try to uh, find out who's listening to us, and then trying to bring content to them in a way that um, for us, for, you know, on the left, it's 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 to challenge them. Uh, the right, it's just to affirm their fears. You know, talk conservative talk radio does two things: it finds something wrong and it finds someone to blame for it. That's it. There's and that's that and then makes, scares. I think the third part is to make you scared. Well, that's the point. I mean, yeah. so what? The, you know, they have this rich, deep baritone stoking your darkest fears, and you come back. You have to come back the next day to find out what it is because they'll tell you what to be afraid of. No, it's true because it's it's like no, a cult. I'm laughing because it is true. <laughs> it's like a cult. We want you to only come to us because only us can tell you about people. I mean, so, only so I can solve your problems. Right, but you know, but it's if, if they're smart, like Limbaugh did a lot of I right. And and it and it worked, but he was that's because he was first there. It's kind of like Drudge, right? Drudge got there first, and there's nothing particularly you know wholesome or decent about that guy or that page or anything. It's just you know he's got kids or somebody that's working on it all the time, and you can go there and you can get these things. And I do it, and I ignore the stuff I don't want to see. But but back to the I guess the bigger point about what what radio has become. Radio right now is a, is a vessel for conservative thoughts. I'm on one of the few progressive stations in the country, in a city that's no longer what people think. Uh, San Francisco. I mean, right down, right, you know, right down the hall from me, is a, a KSFO station, which has Hannity and you know, and now I guess Charlie Kirk and Ben Shapiro and all these other, you know, uh, little children limbos. Yeah, children. And um, so, the actual, the actual message, you know, going back to what McLuhan said. The, uh, the message that I, we're trying to push through is this, this narrative uh, that, that, you know, you, you can't express, um, you, you don't have to be a populist, you know, and, and scare people, right? You can actually give people information, and we've seen it with public radio. If you go most of these markets around the country, the public radio stations are number one. Now, they don't yeah. have commercials, right? But people, there's a strong conservative element, I mean, that, I mean, excuse me, a, a progressive element that embraces this kind of this thought. And then also it's kind of a pushback to, um, you know, the the, uh, the influx and the rise in conservative talk radio. But you remember Air America? Yeah. Okay. So Air America was a great idea, but they just didn't have talented broadcasters on there. To do a show is to tell a story. And, you know, you have to be, you have to understand the basic elements of storytelling, you know, which is, you know, here's a person in their, in their regular situation Here's the crisis they face. Here are the different steps they go to resolve that crisis. And the third act is whether or not they're successful. And that's kind of that kind of basic storytelling has been around for five thousand years, and it's employed by re the really good broadcasters. Although I'll say this: there's not that many. Right. Anymore. And, really and here's right. the rest of the story. Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh. So anyway, for those so, who, for those who don't know that reference, <laughs> good day. Good day. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> I met him on occasion. He wasn't as crazy as he sounded. You know, like some. Well, he, but he, to your point, he did know how to craft a story. Yeah, very and, much. And I mean, that was a, 
Um, and your point is well taken. And that's one of the things that you don't see in radio today. Real well, you don't see it on television. But I, I, how much did being a stand-up comedian influence you in being able to tell a story? Because there's there's some crossover talents in both worlds. Well, actually, that's funny you say that because that's a big part of when you talk to the people that hired me from day one. It had to do my first job, my second job, my third job, and even my last job. The fact that I was a stand-up comic and had had success doing that um, influenced them, and it got me to the front of the table. That white privilege, right? I mean, right? I wouldn't have that. I mean, I was. There's no way that being a comic is. Um, first of all, people don't understand. It's not about happiness, right? Happiness no. is, is holding a baby while the sun comes up. Okay, that's you know that's happiness. Comedy is the sharp end of the stick. Here, here's the difference between happiness and comedy. Uh, say, uh, and this kind of describes why people laugh. Um, you got a, so you got a parking lot. It's really icy in the parking lot, and this this uh, this Rolls Royce pulls up, and this big fat guy with his briefcase gets out and takes two steps and falls on his ass. You laugh, right? It's just, you know, you don't want him to break his neck, but you laugh, right? But if a mom with two little kids gets out and she falls down, you run to help her. Um, it, it's about how we observe a human behavior. Context. And, and Exactly, context, and also misdirection. In other words, so this guy gets out, and we're led to believe that he is, uh, as remember Winston McCoy and Bonfire of the Vanities, right? You know, right. masters of the universe. And so he gets out, and boom, it all comes apart, and nature brings him down. And it's that contrast that produces that that impulse to, to laugh. Um, and, and it's funny, because so laughter, people go in a comedy club, it's not about happiness. People go in there, it's almost like a big therapy session, you know? It when is. You're, there, you're talking about people's darkest and weirdest fears, um, you know, I... Which is why most comedians I've ever known that were really successful were really twisted. <laughs> well, or they just, they were really good writers. I mean, you know, the best comic in, in our generation is probably Jerry Seinfeld. And Jerry's is normal. I mean, he's a little bitter. I mean, not bitter. Yeah. He's, he's a little rough on the edges because he's been in the industry a long time. But I remember seeing him in 1979 at a place called L. Berkman's in D.C. And he'd already been on, um, I don't know if he'd been on The Tonight Show yet in 79. Maybe he had just done one appearance. But he was the guy. We were all like, ooh. And you know, he, he knew how to write a joke. There's a story where a guy came up to him with a pad of uh, paper and he said, could you write down the contact numbers for The Tonight Show and Letterman? And he said, here, go fill up the pad with stuff and come back in five years, and then you'll be ready, and I'll give you the numbers, right? You know, he had this real approach about the industry. It's like, this is work. This, yeah. You know, there's no natural comedian. When somebody's really funny in a party, go, you should do stand-up comedy. I'm like, no. No, no. Nothing to do with what we do. And I'm not saying there's any big secret to it. In fact, to the contrary. It's just about work, 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 work. You know? Well, yeah. I mean, how many times have you worked out a bit over the content, over the course of a year to hone it to get it to where you can actually get a you know you're going to get a laugh every time you do if you're in the right group but it, right that's tough to do it's not well, I mean, just going out and going ha 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 and you know it's funny i mean like the um i think one of the first jokes i wrote in stand-up was um um i did a paper in college when i was a freshman and my professor said it was sophomoric and i said thanks right and, <laughs> and, and <laughs> And, and I'm just I, a freshman. <laughs> and, and so I remember, like, you know, when I got a laugh from it, I thought, okay, well, what, you know, I was trying to dissect why people laugh. And then I would try to always write a bit. If I was going to sit down and start to write, I would not write outside my, my set. I'd go in my set and I'd say, how can I make this tighter and better? And I would grow it from within. Because 
it's kind of like there's a great book called um, Deep Thought. It's about the process of writing and about how turning everything off and focusing. And it takes about 20 minutes to really get to you know where you're so, where you need to be. And when you're interrupted, it takes about 20 minutes to get back. It's a funny way the mind works. But back to your original question about how comedy and and and, um, and talk radio, I don't really know if they have as much in common, except for the confidence factor. You know. I mean, if I think somebody... it's a storytelling aspect to it, that that's what I was going with it. I think that the best stand-up comedians know how to craft a good. I, I mean, if you look at uh, any of the of the masters, Seinfeld, you know, you could look at uh, Richard Pryor, you could look at George Bill Pryor. Hicks, anybody, yeah, yeah, Bill, right. Bill Hicks, all of them could craft a story, and they could put you in that world. And the best broadcasters I've I've seen have that talent they do it in a different medium well you know here's the deal it's like i would go on the road i did um in, a, in about a 10-year period i probably averaged about eight shows a week for 10 straight years you know so i was just out there you know and and i got you got tired i, I yeah. wouldn't want to get up the next morning and write i want to go to the mall and have breakfast and watch some tv and then do my so it was hard it was but with talk radio i couldn't do the same show tomorrow i have to do yeah. a different show every day yeah and, and, you know, and so I'm, I'm always trying to think of something that's funny. We do, a, um, I do a thing at the end of the show called What the Franklin. And, uh, and I go inside that and I try to bring in stories. And we had a story about, Jill, uh, I had a guy on that was um, a film critic, but he talks about streaming. And we, we don't really talk about what's out. We talk about, you know, what, what people are trying to do. And there was a great story about in, um, in Anthony Bourdain's film where they, uh, they actually put a line in, they took a sample of his voice and made him say something he didn't say. So we started talking about the bigger picture of this, about, um, you know, uh, about the idea of, uh, are we seeing what we think we really see? You know, and then uh, reality television, which got people away from the idea of, of scripted things. They, they liked the spontaneity, they liked the idea that they weren't being controlled, that they were uh, part of it or something that was happening but no one can control. It made them kind of drawn to it. But I bring that up because there's there's a whole concept of being able to create. Um, uh, when we do a story, I want I want it to be something that um, that a unique point of view. For example, if you want to, and sometimes it's being a devil's advocate. So so as as much as it is about storytelling, it's about trying to get people to think outside the box in every story. I mean, it could be. Let's just talk about. Um, should, let's talk about vaccines. Right. I right. mean, you know, the the whole idea would be. If I'm vaccinated, you know why I wear a mask? Because I want to force the unvaccinated people to wear a mask so they can't <laughs> kill other people. You know, So it's like, oh, really? So wait, you're telling me that I don't need a mask. I said, no, you don't need a mask to protect yourself. But we need a mask on to force the unvaccinated people. So we need a masking policy. So, you know, I try to take it from a different angle. So, I mean, if you wanted to talk right now about anything, anything I could probably get it going. And, and immediately what I try to do is find find something, a, a conflict that raised the stakes. It makes everybody lift their heads up. So whatever it is we're going to talk about, you know, if you want to talk about, uh, is, is there something wrong with Biden's cadence? Is there something wrong with him mentally? You know, I can go into that. We can talk about that. But, you know, I know in my heart there's not. Right. I know what they're saying. So how do I, how do I set that up? Maybe I start with, a, um, you know, when we want to talk about, let's talk about Reagan. Let's talk about Trump. Let's talk about Republicans. Let's talk about... You know, Bush's malaprops. Right, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, just the whole idea um, of that Sean Hannity has one trick, and that trick is to disparage his mental clarity, right? Well, 
Sean Handy's one trick, I think, is just, as we said at the beginning of the segment, is just fear. That whatever it is, uh, the, the fear of the day. So if he can make something up about uh, his mental acuity, he will. But it doesn't, whatever Hannity does doesn't necessarily have any basis in reality. It's just a basis in fear. Well, let me go back and find and put a, a, an answer to your question is, so I, I don't really think comics necessarily are any better equipped to be um, talk, show, talk host. show host, except for the, the, the confidence factor that, you know, that they feel when the mic comes on, they're not, they don't tense up, they kind of dive in, you know, that's kind of been, so you do it so many nights and so you've done this, you know, yeah. so many nights that, um, that, you know, you just want to get on stage and move it. Now I have, my, my comedy muscle is so weak now. I used to be able to do 90 minutes. Um, I'd, I'd be tough. I'd be hard-pressed to do 30. I haven't done a stand-up show really maybe two or three in the last 20 years. Wow. That said, I can still do – I can still go out and do 10 solid minutes. Yeah, you, you know, still got your tight 10, baby. <laughs> yeah. And I, have, so I, I, and I write some new jokes now and then. I see some things. and I, um, But, you know, the, the, um, the thing I won the Murrow Award for, which was basically I did a – like a, um, a thing called The Week Gone By, which was kind of like Saturday Night Lights Weekend Update. Right. And I did my own version of that for the radio. And it was, you know, 2004. You know, there was a horrible war going on. Americans were dying. People were writing stories about Darfur. And so I, you know, I, I sent in this comedy stuff. And I talked to one of the judges about two years later, and he said, we've been listening to this dark and really fantastic journalism. And you came in with these jokes. So I did basically... You know, I did about nine minutes of jokes. It was three different things that they listened to. And uh, and he said, I want it on the first vote. Wow. And it's, you know, and it's, it's, and it's funny, too, because it has nothing to do with talk radio, but it has everything to do with, you know, be, uh, understanding irony. And, you know, and that's... So, what I... To me, what a good talk show host is, is a facilitator. You know, unless you want to be... If you want to be Joe Rogan or Rush Limbaugh or somebody no, like please. that... No. Yeah, right. No, I, but I, I didn't get to that. I mean, I was, I, you know, it's 27 years I've been doing this. I've had some really bad radio shows in 27 years. You know, uh, we all has, well, that takes me before we go to the break. Two questions about comedy. Uh, what's the worst gig you ever did? Well, the worst result. I mean, I've, um, I was lucky. You know, I mean, I, I toured with Ramones in Chicago and do these big rooms and like thousands of people. And I learned how to do that, you know. Um, what I was always not, what I wasn't great with was smaller events. I had a guy once hire me to do stand-up at Sam and Harry's in a room with nine guys, right? Oh. And they, and they go, and I got to go, this is going to, and they said, you can be as dirty as you want. I said, really? I had these guys blushing, okay? Nine guys <laughs> at, a, at, at a bachelor party, okay? <laughs> so but the worst gig I ever had was, was a, was a boat and I was like I got like two grand to do 20 minutes on this boat and there were like 40 people in the audience and it was a three-hour tour like the the minnow right you know, the, <laughs> Gilligan and so, and yeah so the, my comedy came in the first 45 minutes and I go out there and what they didn't tell me it was like 45 people that didn't know each other from all over the country and about a third of them were Asian and their English was maybe passing at best right and everybody was uptight because they didn't want to be seen laughing because they were all like just new hires. So I come out there and I start, I think my first joke was about, oh, I don't know, what it, I can't even remember. But I, I remember it, it was so bad that when we hit a little bump and on the on the ocean, I go, I think we just hit the last comic that did this gig, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> nothing. So I did, so, so I did 20 minutes and it was, I mean, you couldn't, so I did my, I didn't, I couldn't even do the full 30. 
and uh, and I so afterwards I, I had to hang with these people for two and a half hours. Oh my I mean, god! I really wanted to jump over and swim to shore. It's how bad it was. And I just remember, and like each one of them came up to me and go, oh, "We really thought that was funny." I was, <laughs> I was like, "Okay, you, you tore a little of my soul out." There's a, and that was about that was probably about twenty five years ago. So it was, wow. but I've never. I mean, I've, you know, you know this. I mean, when you get into this thing, it's hard to fail if you're really, really competitive and you really, you know, I mean, um, sometimes they're just, they don't want to hear you. And, you know, you just go, oh. you know, cool in the gang. Wait, I went for cool in the gang. Wait, real quick. So it was at University of Virginia and they had a Bud Light Frisbee night. They gave everybody in the crowd a Bud, you see what this going, right? So yes, I get on I do. <laughs> I'm talking and a, and a Frisbee lands on the stage and, uh, and, uh, and I go, oh, you missed me. And next thing I know, there's 300. Wrong, wrong thing to say. <laughs> yeah. So, so. <laughs> So the, the guy says, come off the stage. Cool and the gang goes out there and they go, one, two, three, celebrate. Come on, Frisbee hit the stage. They stopped it. And they go, go ahead and throw another Frisbee. I'm not going to curse on your show. Yeah. Go you ahead curse. Well, anyway, and so that, you know, and so then they looked and they go, one, two, three, celebrate. And the guy goes, you should have done that, man. You should have just told them to quit throwing Frisbee. So, yeah, but most of my, I just picked that out of 25 years of traveling. Most of the time, you know, the comedy clubs and, you know, the, the colleges. I didn't have any of the problems the comics do today with political correctness and stuff. Yeah. That, do you think that do you think that's ruined? Now, there's two schools of thought. Like Ricky Gervais says, you know, it, it's it's you can make any joke you want and people will either laugh or don't. And then you move on. It's a great system. And then there are others like like Seinfeld has said it's more difficult today to get on stage because of people are self-conscious about laughing about the foibles of man. So where do you fall on that? You know, can't take a joke. Fuck you. Right. How about that? <laughs> I mean, it's a joke, right? Now there, there's a comics. <laughs> that's, a, that's a comics mentality. You don't like the joke. Fuck you. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, I'm, what there, you I'm right there with you. I'm yeah. right there with you. <laughs> I mean, on another hand, you know, like, you know, to me, it's always got a, you know, I mean, I do a lot of jokes I have in the past, and I haven't been on stage that much, but about race. I grew up in D.C. Yeah. And um, and I don't think they, you know, today, if I did it in the club, I'd probably get people, you know, ooh and hissing. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> I mean, I used to do jokes in front of black audiences and say the N-word, talk about the N-word with them. Not say it, but talk about it, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and actually ask them, you know... Um, Louis C.K., and I hate to say his name these days, but had a bit about when, when people say the N-word, you force me to think the word, right? <laughs> you know, right. Okay. You know, instead of just saying, uh, you know, a, a, a pejorative towards people of color, which is what you should say, they get yeah. to say the N-word and say, you get to think that word in your head, you know? But anyway, yeah, so um, that, that I, I don't really think that there's, um, I mean, good comics, you know, the, you know, you can still make edgy jokes. Um, you can still talk about men and women and relationships. You know, you can try to figure out, is it was it wrong that the guy kissed a sleeping beauty? Was that really date rape? Really, people? Really? Really, that's where you want to go with that? That's date rape? Get a fucking life, right? You know? <laughs> you know? Oh, you I, kissed a frog. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, on, on the it's other hand. abuse. I mean, we live in a fucking crazy world where Bill Cosby's free and Britney Spears can't get a checking account, right? I mean, <laughs> fuck, right? Yeah, fuck that. Yeah, That's, yeah right? And, uh, you know, I tell you how crazy a world we live in. We live in a crazy world where we're asking those questions in a White House briefing room. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love Jen Psaki, man. I she is <laughs> just when she beats up Peter Ducey, I just I mean that's worth tuning into every day. When she did the thing about when he asked about people spying on their Facebook account, she goes, "I, I was well, standing all, behind him." <laughs> and I love her. She goes, well, first of all, that's a loaded question." And by the way. Uh, these are open to everybody. You, you know, you do know Facebook is an, an not a private anyway. So she was. That, that's got to be you know. I mean, you just want to hit him over the head occasionally, don't you? I, I, is, I stand behind him. What do you think? <laughs> I'm standing five feet away. Well, you know, it's it's a different briefing room. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about okay. that in, in a minute. We got to go to a break, and we'll be right back. Hey there, JATQ listeners. We deeply appreciate your listenership and the audience we've been able to cultivate while producing this podcast. Thanks to all of your support, we've been able to ramp things up and create even more content for you to enjoy. Through our Patreon page, there are lots of new and exciting things to check out. Due to the way Patreon is set up, it's entirely up to you, the listener, to decide what that content is worth. The podcast episodes will always be free. But if you want to gain access to our weekly newsletter, ad-free episodes, exclusive merch, and much, much more, you'll want to head over to patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. That's patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Thanks. Have a great day. Hi, we're back. It's just asked the question, and I still can't keep a straight face after that break. <laughs> and our guest is Chip Franklin, and we're talking about comedy in the White House. <laughs> yeah, the briefing room has changed. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I'll say this much: I haven't had a uh, I haven't had a death threat since uh, January twentieth, but I've had a, f- a few more laughs at the expense of other reporters. You sit on the outside, Chip. The thing I wanted to ask you is. What do you think of the job that reporters do in that briefing room? Well, I think it's great. You know, you got you got to light a match to guys' shoes, right? I mean, um, whoever it is, you know. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, when you have a real pro in there, you go back to, like, all the way back to Jerry Terhorst, right, who was Gerald, oh, yeah. Gerald Ford's press secretary who quit after he pardoned Nixon. You know, you go, wow. You know, and then um, I can't remember the guy's name. Who was Clinton's press secretary? McCurry? Mike, um, Mike McCurry was the first. McCurry. I, I like McCurry. Yeah, and I, I his kid went to my kid's school. They were and so I'd see him at the parent teacher thing. And I was on in WMAL at the time. So what is this, ninety eight, ninety nine, maybe mm-hmm. somewhere in there, you know? And uh yeah. and I introduced myself and he goes, I know who you are <laughs> <laughs> And he was really nice. He just well, I didn't ask him anything about it. I just said, How's the job? And he said, You know, you you see it every day, right? And I'm so it was but I, I, I think you guys um have a really, it's weird because it's a small window. It's hard to ask the kind of question that will get an answer that will also get you called on the next time. So there's a real right. balance there, you know. I mean, you can go like you go your direction. I love that. It's like, you you know, you're like, you know, hey, fire. There's a fire, you freak. What are you going to do about it, right? And, that you know, you did that for the whole Trump administration. And I think, you know, you know this, a lot of people, you know, um, wouldn't do what you did because there's, there's obviously there's a real quick downside to it if it doesn't work if it comes off the wrong way but you kind of came i think in my opinion came across as kind of the people's kind of guy you know asking the questions that they wanted to know um you know but with a with enough respect that it, it, it wasn't intimidating um 
I would have loved the scene where Sean Spicer would have gone with that. You talk about comedy. That thing, you know, he would have ended up being like Paul Lind. Remember Paul Lind? No. <laughs> he would have gone that direction. I thought he did go in that direction. <laughs> I mean, that's why he left. Yeah. Well, he actually I, left because he didn't like the mooch. But, uh, he, you know, that was, uh, I think, Sean, at that, by that point in time, had, had enough. But Yeah, but I get people, you know, that job, um, you know, people, uh, people have much better bullshit detectors than they did before the Internet. You know, I think yeah. people that watch that stuff, you know. Um, and it's a tough gig. Every day I go on Twitter and I hear people screaming about a fire Chuck Todd. I'm like, quit fucking watching it if you don't like Chuck Todd. You don't have to. You know, That's you don't my to, point. You know, I mean, there's a million people out there. Um, I don't know Chuck personally. I met him a couple times in the 90s and I liked him. You know, he seemed like a, it's a tough gig. You know, I mean. He's I always he, been polite to me. We've always gotten along when we've started. Right. Um, I, my reaction is the same if you don't like, well, you know, well, I think I even said this to uh, to uh, Sarah Sanders at one point in time. I said, you know, our audience has a choice. They can turn off, turn the channel, pick up a different newspaper, turn us off. We don't really have a choice of the president. We're stuck with his ass for four years. So, I, I mean, that's the difference. Anybody can turn us off. And, and instead of telling you, you, the best way to say you want someone fired is to just not watch them. And when the ratings right. go down, that's when they get fired. But watching oh. them and b- bitching about them, that just tells management I, I'm on to something. <laughs> well, it's that famous scene in Private Parts when they're, they're complaining about Stern, they go, how many people, how many hours do people listen to him that like him? And it's two. And what about the people who hate him? It's four, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and it's kind of, I think, but, you know, with so many, so many uh, uh, places to go. I mean, you know, podcasts made more money in 2019 than Facebook did. I mean, people are looking for alternative ways to get stories. The problem with the podcast, obviously, unless you release it every couple hours, you're going to be behind the curve if you're doing something right. like God Save America or Pod Save, God Save, Pod Save America and those, um, which I like. They're different. Um, I, my favorite probably is a combination of, oh, you know, some of the, uh, you know, hidden brain kind of stuff or on, on a different level, really good storytelling, Malcolm Gladwell. You know, yeah. it's funny because I disagree with him on, on a lot of issues, not profoundly, but, I was, you know, like he did this whole thing about Prop 13. And, you know, Prop 13 is that here you know, it's yep. in California? Yeah. So for anybody that doesn't know, it means basically you get to keep paying the same property tax you did about 30 years ago, 35 years ago. So it's for people that don't, won't, won't get pushed out of their home by property tax, which would be more than their mortgage. And they don't have a mortgage anymore. Anyway, so he found out golf courses, these billionaire golf courses, were under the protection of Prop 13. It's great reporting. And it was a great story. It was already out there, but, you know, the... LA Times and the others, the Chronicles, they hadn't gotten really the story out there. So it can be great storytelling and news breaking on a much bigger scale, you know? So, well, back to. Yes, can do that too, yeah. But let's go back to what you're saying. So, about what you guys do in that room. It's different, obviously, than what, you know, Rucker or Carol Lennig and others do. And can't wait to read their new book, too. Um, but I think what you guys have to do is you have to find a way to, to get an answer. In, in a, um, uh, it's almost like a magic trick because there's only a list of things they're going to say. you right. got to find a way to either flummox them uh, or confuse them and get them to say something that uh, opens up a can, right? And, and it's hard. And I Well, that's I, I look at it this way. You know, it was one of my mentors, of course, was Sam Donaldson. And he said it, it's their job to put their best foot forward. And that's their job. And, we, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Our job is to find out what is really going on 
So I, I don't like. Your God. job is to trip them as they put their foot out there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. Yeah. Our job is to take the cane and whack them on the head. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't view it as a gotcha situation. I view it as an explanatory role and to put, you know, the other one and the reason why I, uh, the podcast is called "Just Ask the Question" is Helen Thomas told me she said Brian, it doesn't matter what the question is, it just matters that you put it out there. That way they cannot. De- you deny that the issue has been brought before right. them. So yeah. just ask the question. And the other point to that, and you talked about McCurry. McCurry once told me, he said the thing that he liked about briefings and he hated, he really hates the fact that he made them um, televised because he thought it became, you know, cheap theater. But, huh. but one of the things that he said that they got out of the briefing is they learned as much from the questions that we asked as from the answers that they provided. And sometimes the questions that we ask help guide policy. And so it's a two-way, I view it as a two-way street. So I'm, I, uh, you thank you for noticing, but I always do try to ask a question that I think most people want answered that isn't asked. We get, we get buried in nuance so many times on those, or, you know, or the process. And then there are people who just want to know, like, for example, why the hell did you pick Jeff Blake? <laughs> which is what I asked the other day. And it was, you know, I just had to put that out there. Why, why'd you pick Jeff like for Turkey of all reasons? I mean, when he left the Senate, he pissed off the right and the left because the right said he wasn't, uh, he didn't, you know, he wasn't aligned with Trump and the left said, well, they didn't come after Trump fast enough. And I'm going, well, I guess that there's diplomacy. He pissed everybody off. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a way to ask a question and you have to do this because you, you, you know, you, you respect them to a certain extent that most of the people, yeah. I mean, there've been people, obviously, obvious exceptions, people that shouldn't have been there, but I mean, it's kind of like sometimes the answer will reveal more than the question. And it is always should. And uh, here's a good example, like asking somebody, if you want to know about somebody's uh, religious feelings, right? You could come to them and say, what do you think happens to you after you die? But a better way might be to say, what do you, what do you, th- what do you think of your life right now? And as they, you know, and they, as they answer the second question, I think it'll give a m- much broader and deeper examination of, of who they are than whether or not they say, I believe in God and Jesus, I'm going to float up to heaven, you know? So it's, it's interesting. So you can ask a question that doesn't appear to have anything to do with the, 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 the former, but the latter question can be even more, can bring a greater self-examination. And I, that's what you, so right. you know, that's what I love when you guys do, you know, it's like yeah, you can sure. see so the wheels right. turning. Yeah. Well, that's, and you know what? I'll go back to stand-up comedy on that. How you craft, you, you spend so much time crafting a joke. I spend that much time crafting a question. And I think of it the same way I approach it, the same way you almost approach comedy. Well, I used to do this thing, um, this callback that would, um, and it would just, you know, to kind of make people laugh and to real, try to think of it as a story, I would come out and say, you know, I grew up with 11 older sisters. I didn't go to the bathroom for 14 years. Right? <laughs> and so, and then hold on. Right so about, tw- about 15 minutes later, I'd go, you know, being the youngest of 17. And then they would laugh, you know, like, and then I would say, you know, and I'd, one more time I'd go like, you know, you know, I had, you know, I had, so I had 19 brothers and they were laughing at, so then right near the end, I go, you know, being an only child, yeah. well, after the flood, you know, yeah. and so, but you know, just trying to bring up, you know, a, like a narrative through that when, and that's the thing that's what's so hard is when you're listening to the answer to your question is to be able to still bookmark exactly what you need. So they'll gloss over it. You can't interrupt them. But you want to remember, oh, you just said something that I want to dive into. It's a crack. And so you have to let them finish. So you got to, you got to both remember where that was 
and then still listen to what they're saying after that. That's a difficult thing, and you can't really keep notes, so you, you got to do it mentally. And it's 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 kind of like what we talked before with stand up and doing a talk show, asking questions in those situations because you're under the lights too. You're you're examined. You know now with Twitter, the whole world can stick a rod up your ass, right? So you you really got to get that right. You got to listen. You got to follow up. Yeah, well, you know, I can't help hey you. There. <laughs> but, hey now, this is the internet, though. Um, but you know, so, so to me, watching what you guys do, and I, you know, it goes back to Rather, who is uh, to me. I don't, I don't know Dan as a friend, but I've interviewed him a number of times, and you know, he he's just such a mensch. He's such a great guy. He's yeah, and um, and but listening to him, and I remember, of course, the questions with Nixon kind of reminded me of you a little bit. You know, are you <laughs> running for something? No, are you? No, are That's you? exactly what you would have said. <laughs> You were the dick that would have said that. And today you could have, but back then it took real balls. You remember how much shit he got for that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was... Well, kids, did you remember the face Nixon made at him? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I got him on his enemies list, remember? That oh, was yeah. a, that he was one of he was one of the first people on his enemies list yeah. when that was that was finally. I revealed. remember interviewing Hunter Thompson, and Hunter was pissed off that he wasn't on the enemies list. He said, "I'm going to do the, my best when they run it uh, when they renovate the list. I want to be on it." <laughs> yeah, it, it is. You know the, um, the, the the this whole thing with Millie and and um, so that's not only hugely important and and frightening story. You know the possibility that. That Trump was really going to try to enlist people in defense and military to to stay in power. I mean, you know, it's fucking third world crazy stuff, right? Um, but the way you guys covered that and the, the timing and everything with you know, um, you know, the reporting by the Post and others about this, um, it kind of confirms what we all really feared and knew. Kind of what you know, Mattis and others had kind of alluded to. But you know, I mean, the truth is, Mattis and Kelly should be standing on boxes screaming at the fucking wind to get people yeah. to understand. That if this if these people win again in 2022 and 2024, all bets are off. Yeah, we're all bets up. are off. But yeah, I mean, look, Trump told us himself, and this is one thing that's you know anchored on my Twitter page. When I asked him in September 23rd, win, lose, or draw, will you you know yeah. agree to a, a peaceful transfer of power? Well, if you stop counting the votes, there won't be a transfer. Hell, we knew what he. I mean, he said it. He said it. Yeah, and and. and the one thing about Donald Trump, when you talk about transparency, all you had to do was listen. He was pretty damn transparent. He told Leslie Stahl, you know, hey, I, I, I scream fake news so people don't believe you. I mean, he's all about the grift. He's all about the con and he's all about himself. And, and yeah, most con artists usually leave town after the con. He stayed, which is remarkable. And, and Well, he left D.C., you know. but he's down in Florida. <laughs> he, did, he did leave town, but not willingly. I, I, I <laughs> Well, do you think that, um, I mean, in some ways, I think that uh, the last four years excited and I don't know, saved is the wrong word, but it made the New York Times and Washington Post the most relevant uh, 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 journals of truth, I think. And that's a kind of the wrong phrase. I, I don't mean, I know it made it made their reporting even more important and more. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I think it gave them some momentum that carries past that. And uh I mean, I still keep my subscriptions. It's shit. It's about forty bucks a month for those two papers, um, and um, and my I, my well, no, it's not true. My KGO pays for it, but anyway, I, <laughs> but I did pay for them at first, and and um, and they. No, kinda... I pay for them, and I still keep them, and it is important reporting. The thing, though, about us is we have to remember that it's not just the national reporting, but it's the local reporting. It's the community right. reporting where these people grow. I mean, the QAnon people didn't 
and and the Trumpers didn't start at the top. Donald Trump is a symptom. He's not the cause. He's, uh, I mean, so all of that began at a local level and the community journalism is just, well, you know, I gave you a copy of the book. That's my, I, I posit that that's where the problem is, is we just don't have a lot of that left. Well, and I think your approach to this in the book, which is a great book, by the way, I told you that it's- Thank you. Excited to, to see it this fall. Um, the, the idea, what's really changed, I think, is um, the, the, and this goes way back to like, you know, you know, the post has to beat the times, the times has to beat the post. And in that haste uh, to get, you know, the news out, there's there, mistakes can be made. Although, you know, for every Jason Blair and Janet Cook, there's 10,000 amazing stories or 100,000 yes. amazing stories, right? Um, but with with the web, of course, you, you can make a mistake and take it down. There's always a screen capture and things like that. Right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean like, you know. Anthony Weiner mistakes on the internet. I mean, like you know, you can you know you can get Anthony, a fact wrong. Anthony's you know. Weiner. <laughs> well, well, you know this, right? When you're putting a book together, you know, you go back and you have people fact check stuff. And I've been reaching out, and um, and, and you know, and people's memories are a little different here and there. And I'm trying to trying to get all this information, but I have time. Imagine trying to do that, you know, in a, in a news cycle. It's extremely difficult, and it's, it takes really talented people. Unfortunately, you know, for Fox and OAN and Newsmax, and I hesitate to even mention those last two but they don't care if they get it wrong and because what they say is we're not a news organization they come out and say right. it you know i mean tucker carlson had to put that i mean i don't think that was part of the whole dominion lawsuit. thing yeah, yeah i mean that lawsuit right he's like hey i'm not a news organization i'm just giving my opinion which is protected by the first amendment you know so um yeah you know, i mean he pretends that he's giving news that it and people buy it that's disturbing hey, he's it, a dangerous person he really is yeah, I, I mean, when he took the bow tie off, I think it, you know, his head swelled, and, and now here we go. <laughs> like, <clears throat> anyway, well, we're going to take another short break, and we'll come right back. Hey, just ask the question, podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. Again, that's at J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, it's Just Ask the Question. We're back. Our guest is Chip Franklin and Chip. Uh, you know, one of the things I've asked over the last few months, and you know, it started out as a fringe uh, issue. And I remember when people were uh, asking this question in the briefing room back during Clinton. And even before then, there was a guy who would ask this question all the time. And it was always looked down upon, frowned upon, and looked as a joke. But recently, the DOD came out with its uh, study about UAPs, or you know what we used to know as UFOs. And so the question I've, I've asked a lot of my guests is, where do you fall on that? Have you ever seen anything you can't explain? In the mirror every day. Hell, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you. It's a when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I, had, I was really big into this. There was a thing called NICAP. Yeah, uh, National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And I had I must have had eighty books on UFOs, so I was like, I'm like twelve or thirteen, and so it, it I look at these pictures and I go, it smells like bullshit, you know. Even as a kid, you know, I had a pretty yeah. good nose for that, and uh, so I um I at one point there was a yeah, remember the Alexandria Gazette? Does that ring a bell? Yep. It was a yeah. new, okay, so I I grew up right across the river from D.C. in, in a town called Alexandria, Virginia. And so I, I got a Polaroid and I took a garbage can and I that my sister threw it up in the air and I took a picture of it. 
and I and it said, you know, we're getting invaded. And I took it down to the Gazette, and I said, you know, I, I this is a UFO, and they showed it to me really, and I go, I'm 12, you're 30 years old, and you said really, <laughs> you know, I was thinking to myself. <laughs> but anyway, they published it, and I got, I wrote, that was my first piece in a newspaper, and I wrote about, you know, how be careful what you believe, you know, what you think you see, it could be something else. <clears throat> to me, we have 800 satellites taking. Uh, 4K images of the Earth uh, every second as we speak. Right. right. But it, it always comes out. Yeah, I hate like, when they take pictures of my bathroom. That's the thing that gets me. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, there's no, like, John Waters odor cam on that thing either. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but remember John Waters had that thing where you could yeah. scratch and stuff? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, so it, it, if I just find it odd that the only images we get or some guy's, you know, uh, Galaxy iPhone that he dropped in a lake and it, he shot it right into the sun and I see some little nipple thing flying across you. You know, does, has it occurred to anybody that possibly these are anomalies within the, the, the way that the, the images themselves and what we're seeing? That, um, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a huge business in, in a distraction here. I mean, the world is upside down. Wouldn't it be great to just distract people for a while? You know, the, actually, the interesting thing anybody ever said about UFOs <clears throat> was Ronald Reagan. And I, and I thought it was kind of profound in a way. He said, wouldn't it be, and it also sounds crazy for a president to say. It used to say, seem crazy. Well, said, it'd be great if we were attacked from outer space so we get the whole Earth to come together. Yeah. It sounds like somebody from Hollywood that would say it. But it's, the truth is... If there is a common theme that would put all humankind together, it would be an attack from outer space. So, I, I wouldn't. I'm not saying there's conspiracy to, to, you know, to make people believe these things are up there. But if you again, it, why don't we have a 4K picture of one of these things? It's a Fermi paradox. Right. If they're here, where are they? You know. So you've and, never seen anything you can't explain. I'm, you know, I mean, uh, Christ, I'm not. Look, I didn't have a third encounters of the close kind. Uh, oh, no, of a right. third or whatever the fuck yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Richard Dreyfus, that movie gave me so much anxiety. They were all fucked up people. And then, That's you know, <laughs> he deserved to get on that ship and get out of there. That was a weird dude. Get on right? the ship, damn it. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, that was not, yeah. anyway. But um, so I know I, I don't. First of all, yeah, there's a lot of things I've seen in my life I can't explain. Uh, not in the sky that look like flying saucers. And I don't think they're from other planets. I mean, you're talking. If they had the technology, yeah, I've never to... seen anything I can't explain. I, I, okay. I you know, I, I know have, I have relatives who have uh, my mother, but I think she was probably, you know, there's a story there. But um, uh, there, <laughs> but I, I haven't, and um, I'm open to the suggestion, but and and the DOD tapes from fighter pilots, and the thing that always makes me uh, look at it a little more interestingly than I used to. Is the fact that as a pilot, I know that um, military pilots are very well trained in observation. So if they say they, I, I kind of wonder what it is that they're seeing. But I don't see any evidence that shows like you that that I, I don't. If it's from another planet, I, I, if someone from another planet was observing this uh, world, I think they would sit back and go, "Let's just wait until they destroy themselves and them, and we'll just." move in and make it our, you know, vacation home because it's a nice planet, well, but they're idiots. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, without getting deep into the, the physics of it, um, you're talking about if you had a vehicle that could uh, bend space time and create wormholes and, and go across billions of miles in the time it takes to go thousands of miles, right? Like we saw in Interstellar and all these other sci-fi right. movies. 
Don't you think their ship would look a little less like the Jode family coming in, you know, uh, right? I mean, if they could do that. Hercules from outer space. <laughs> exactly, you know. <laughs> if they were going to do that, they would. you would think that they would, you know, first of all, <clears throat> why are they hiding from us if it's that whole fishbowl thing, right? You know, what are we going right. to do, you know? Anyway, I, so I think it's a, um, it's a nice distraction, you know. It's kind of like entertainment tonight of science, you know. I, I'd like. I, well, I am. I'm dis- well, like you. I used to. I had t- dozens of books. I, I, you know, researched it. I wonder what's there. I don't know what's there. Well, uh, you know what? Here's what I'd rather know. I'd rather let's study super superpositioning, and uh, create quantum computers before the Chinese do, and can break all our codes, um, and, and maybe disable our weapons. I mean, whoever. That's the answer. We need super colliders. We need to understand the basic particles of matter oh, absolutely. and energy. And that's what we need. We don't need to be sending fucking rockets into space so somebody can jump around. Why are we putting a lawnmower on fucking Mars? What is that going to do for us? You know, we're never going to be able to go there. You know why? Because there's no food, water, or air. Small well, I'll say this, though. <laughs> in, in response to that, I'll disagree with you slightly. You know, the entire internet and everything, all the computers that we use today, all were a byproduct of the space race. We don't know what we're going to find or what we discover when we invest in it, but there's always a dividend for exploration. Remember that, you know, why, why go to America? Why send people over there? But, you know, we Oh, didn't. please. You, you just said that really out loud? Dude, yeah. You're uh, Queen Isabella all of a sudden? <laughs> no, no, not Isabella. I'm talking about the, Isabella was different. She was banging Chris. But no. Fucking it. No, look, first of all, but, we, but got no, Velcro, we got Velcro and Tang. That's what we got out of the fucking and, space and the, race. And the internet. And no, no, the internet was, you know, we needed a way to move documents around from government right. agents. Well, that's the basis and the computers, but. <clears throat> well, um, what were we, oh, you, yeah, no, but back to it. I mean, just, it's to me. The science is great, and you know DARPA and these great yeah. projects that we have to encourage private. You know, but the, the the bottom line is that we're not going to be living on these planets, uh, and we have, you know, we have to oh, figure. Dude, if we destroy this one, we're going to have to have another one. <laughs> no, but you understand though that the process of of building something oh, yeah. up there with, with monies while this is falling apart, <clears throat> when you have you know when you have and first of all we, we look at entropy the wrong way. Okay, everybody thinks entropy is a bad thing because we can't really recognize what order is. And that's one of the problems we have here, right? Um, if you if you say you're going to that's a kid's chaos room. chaos theory. Well, let's so say you're going to a kid's room, okay? And it's a fucking mess because it's your kid. And you straighten it up. So you then, know my kids. No, hold on. This is an, this is an important point. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. So so you, 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 you set the room up and it looks beautiful to you. And you leave. The kids go back in and tear it up again. What is the real order there? It, it's, of course, the perspective, right? For the kid, the real order is the way he plays, the way he can best. He takes stuff down. He he sees his own world. You go in and alter it to your vision of what that world should be. Okay. When when we're talk- so when you take this out and you start to extrapolate about when we look into space and try to create uh, uh, some sort of order or design on these distant worlds, when the truth is everything that's out there is right here. You can look right in your hand. The quarks that were created at the Big Bang are in your hand. There's the answers are here. We don't have to spend trillion dollars to go and float around space and take pictures of Earth and the sun setting. Ooh, that's not what it's about. It's about studying, gets putting the real physicists and the real work together. You know, Kepler Why can't was the. You do both. We don't have the money. I mean, considering first of all, robotics into space. Well, see, there, I, then, then I would say to that, we do. What we don't have is the will, and we don't have seven billion people working together to help each other. We're too busy tearing each other apart. 
Well, I get it. I know I understand that, but I, guess- I mean, you're talking about, but, but wait a minute, when you talk about entropy, take yourself out of, all right, you, you're talking about the kid's room from his view and from your view, take it out and explode that out another level. What about in uh, God's view, if you su- subscribe to God or, or a large, but, but yeah, yeah. It, or for those that do, I'm trying to include them in the conversation okay. <laughs> <laughs> or, or to explode it out to another view that order existed before you built anything. And the order was dirt and gravel. It's your, it's what you're right. It's what we have here in our own hand, what we do with it. But you can do a lot with it. You don't have to. Well, yeah, Freeman Dyson wrote a great book called The Greening of the Universe, where you send out great, robotics. Great book. Yeah, and, and they go out and they land on asteroids and they continue to they, they proliferate. And we send signals back and we create this, you know, this hopefully this way in like the next thousand years that we're communicating. And we maybe can learn from other, you know, the idea that, that we should be afraid and constantly fearful of what's out there because whatever finds us is going to, you know, again. Destroy us. I, yeah, I mean, it's uh, to me. The whole idea of you know what I can't even begin to fathom what it's going to look like in fifty years, much less a thousand years. Fuck, I'm worried you know? about five years from now. Five, I'm, yeah, yeah, this afternoon, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. At the end of the news cycle. Let's see. But you know, you asked you asked me about this and going back down the whole UFO thing. I think um, uh, we are um, we we could we can have a way of exploration without turning it into Columbus. You know, without exploitation. I agree. Yeah. You know, I, I agree. And, and, Exploration without exploitation would be, uh, but I, to your point, and I see your point, and I, and a lot of people I know, I believe in as much exploration as possible because I think the advancement of exploration advances knowledge, and the advancement of knowledge is a good thing. Well, but but again, so if you're talking, we're talking about building another civilization on another planet. Wouldn't it be less expensive to try to find a way to reduce carbon emissions? Uh, to, I think to you can do desalinate water to do all these things on this planet i don't i really i i you know i think look, you can do both but we i can't think even get we can't even get the yankees and red sox to play a game because of covid restrictions okay i don't know i don't know how we're gonna go well, out you know right in so, all sincerity i mean you talk about it being serious right now that's the short-term problem but the larger problem which would solve many more problems pollution and it and 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 climate change and all is if instead of seven billion people dividing up into little tribes and fighting each other. If those 7 billion people strove to do something constructive, we could. I mean, look at what we did in putting a man on the moon. All it took was the will. And it took one president saying, by the end of this decade, it should be this nation's goal to put a man on a moon and return him safely. And we did that during the Vietnam War, during civil Mm -hmm. unrest and the civil rights era. So if we work together, we can accomplish. Now see, now I sound like Pollyanna. You know, if I was going to say so. I, you know, I was going to know you a long time. I did not know you were this romantic. <laughs> I, and and it's, it's actually, it's quite, it's quite attractive on you that romanticism, and I Thank dig you, it. Sweetie. And I look, you, look. Here's how I feel about this. Right, uh, I used to say that a um, a cynic was a skeptic with all the facts. Right. <laughs> but now, but now I think an optimist is a cynic with children. Uh, there you go. <laughs> right. So, you know, I, I have to be optimistic. I put people out here and I'm responsible for them. Yeah. And if you look at that from a macro sense, too, we're all responsible. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's going to be children that, you know, that, you know, that don't listen to us. Unfortunately, there are about three billion of them. But, you know, that we, we can bring along. And the best way we can do that is through example and through consistency, through integrity 
and you know, and then you just roll the dice. If that doesn't work, then fuck it. You you gave it the best shot. But you know, yeah, you give can't, it your best shot. You know, I start I stop yelling at people now when they call me and they they disagree with me on vaccines. I try to talk to them of some basic science. I try to do a little Bill Nye and work my way up to Hawking. You know, somewhere through that, I try to give them you know as best I can. I don't I don't yell at them. I don't call them stupid. I'll call people in our jobs that are you know propagating lies. I'll call them lots of words. But yeah. for these people that are just kind of, you know, trying to get through their day. They don't understand it. Somebody told them the vaccines can, you know, harm your children or hurt your DNA. And, you know, my job as a communicator is to try to help them uh, understand the same way I did. Not to try to proselytize, but to try to communicate, you know. That's, so that's kind of. That is cool because that's so true. I have relatives and I, you know, I didn't get angry with, with Hannity or, or Tucker Carlson because they know better and they're assholes. Or to, more specifically, when I, when I talked to uh, Eric Swalwell, he, God, he, he uh, congressman from your neck of the woods, um, yeah. he said something that rang so true. He said, he walked into a Senate bathroom one day and Ted Cruz ran into him and said, hey, you're doing really good for your people out there. Keep it up. And he said he finally realized that to, to those people, in, in oh. they are not – they're appealing to a fan base instead of trying to serve their constituents. Very tribal, very tribal. And, and yeah. So he, you know, Swallow said, you know, he's trying to communicate and educate. And that's what we tried to do is communicate, and educate. So I can't take it personally when someone gets angry, you know, like a listener or a reader or, or a viewer. I try to, as you do, try to communicate. I ask them questions. Well, why do you believe this? Well, where did you get the information? Well, here's some information that may be, and then, when you give people information enough of it, sometimes it helps. Whereas if you attack yeah. them and go, "You're you're stupid, you're fucking wrong, you're an idiot," they just they harden up and they go, "Yeah, fuck you, I'm right, you're wrong. Go go eat one." I like what Eric um, Swalwell said on Bill Maher when Maher was piss pissing and moaning about the Dakotas having four senators and saying they should just have two. God damn it, you know, doing that. And, and Swalwell goes, "Well, I have an idea. Why don't we just turn them blue?" You know. <laughs> I mean, and I love it, right? That was the that's the perfect answer, you know. I mean, but he also had a, another great answer when I was when he told me the story about when he was in the Capitol, and uh, he's hunkered down on the floor and he calls his wife and she's got the kids in the bathtub. What if, you know, how did the fucking country come to that point? He's got to call his wife, and 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 he may be dead. I mean, you know, if those guys got hold of Swalwell, they'd have ripped him apart. If they well, did, they were going to kill Mike. I, I was out there, man. They were going to kill yeah. Mike Pence. Yeah, <laughs> that if if they had people don't realize and I was there and I saw it, we there, people do not realize how close we came to total anarchy and chaos. And that was yeah. uh, to, show you, to yeah. show you how stupid those motherfuckers were. You had those people that were climbing the front of the Capitol. I go, dude, there's fucking steps. I said that. Right. <laughs> I actually, I was standing there when they did that. And I go, hey, you moron, there's steps on either side. Somebody's going to break your neck. And sure enough, yeah. one of them fell. And they all came. I had like six or seven of them charge at me. And um, they said they were going to kill me. And I said, whoa, 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 I'm with Playboy. And they go, oh, uh, can you get me into the mansion? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Stop. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. That's true. That's, that's but it was it was in that day was insane. I mean, Trump revved them up, you know, and so did Rudy Giuliani, and so did the Sun, and they all were hoping for you know a coup. And I don't give it. You know, they can explain it away any way they want now, but I was there then, and I know what they were trying to do. 
But yeah, you know, a part of but part of our ability to, to storytell, um, you know, the very first can I? So my book's called Speed Bumps and Guns. It's the ugly side of talk radio, and um, great and, title. Thanks. And so the very first story, if I can tell you real quick, was yeah. Um, so I'm 13 years old, and uh, and I had little cabal guys, and we used to like steal cars. Okay, <laughs> but we, would re- we, we would return them. Uh, Dicky was Dicky was our our our. Um, our leader. He was 14. I was 13. My buddy George, who just hung around with me, was 13. And, you know, we would go and we would hotwire a galaxy. It was easy to do because, you know, you could jimmy open the window. Nobody would know. We'd, we'd drive it around. We'd take it back, you know. I would tell George's parents. George would tell his parents he'd stand with me, you know, and vice versa. So we could stay out all night. We had free reign of the night. Um, this one particular time, I had, um, the, we had a guy named Beanie was with us. Now, Beanie was hardcore. Beanie was, uh, he was 15. But he had gone to juvie uh, for stabbing a guy when he, an eighteen-year-old, when he was twelve. He went six wow. months up the river. So he, tough guy, yeah. So Beanie, so I, he made me nervous. Anyway, so but George knew this guy that had uh, this is a good story. Well, anyone named Beanie would make me nervous, but that's another right. Story. Yeah, I know somebody said Dickie Beanie. What are you like getting this from the the wire? But it was kind of like that, right? But anyway, um, so the George knew this guy that had a Mustang. He was in his seventies, and he we kept the keys above the visor. So we, we went to take that car this night, but it was a stick. And I was the only one that kind of ever driven a stick. My sister had a VW. She let me drive in a parking lot. So we get it out on the road, and we're driving down the road. And, you know, I got it in the third gear, and I come to a light, and I had to stop. And then, so 45 degrees at the other side comes a cop. And, and like, shit, if my light turns first, well, if his light turns first, then he'll go through the intersection and we're free. But that's not what happened. Mine turns green. I go across, you know, back and forth, limping through the intersection. We finally get the other side. We're all praying, and we hear, woo! And Beanie, so Beanie goes, open the door. I'm going to run. I'm going to run. And I said, shut the fuck up. You're not doing anything. You know, so I said, to him, like, I'll handle it. So a cop comes up, and he's like, whose car is this? And I go, oh, I just got my license and my sister's car. I'm trying to learn to stick. I was supposed to stay in the parking lot, but we wanted to come out here and just try to get a little bit. And and so he looks at me, and he goes, and uh, well, who's, where do you go to school? And I go, uh, Bishop Ireton. And he goes, so I said Bishop Ireton. See, my, even though I'm only 13, because my, my cousin was a star running back there, and I knew the chief of police, this guy Captain Grimm, he was one of the assistant coaches. So I knew he would ask me about that. So once he said, who's the coach, I knew I'd won. So yeah. I go, and then I tell this whole story about my dad being a cop. And so he relaxes, never asked for my license. He goes, well, get this thing off the road for you, tear out that clutch, and drives away. And, you know, so the, you know, so all of a sudden the tension kind of goes down. And Beanie looks at me, he goes, don't you motherfucker ever tell me to shut up. But then he paused and then he goes, but that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I talked my way through it, right? And at 13, I realized that if I could talk my way through a traffic stop with a cop, right? You know, so it's, and it's when you look back and realize what a strong, what tool we have in our hands and the awesome responsibility that we have. You know, whatever it is we're doing, you know, whether as a reporter, as a talk show, yeah, you know, not to not to make too much of it, right? Because there's a lot of us, and I, I, you know, and this is something I'm learning after 27 years of doing this is that you know my job is to to communicate ideas and and facts and ideas and and, and definitely you know differentiate between the two, and and you know see if that starts a conversation, 
You know, and I know it sounds kind of new age, well, you, know, you know, but Chip, I never knew you were romantic. <laughs> ah, yeah, you know, God, like romance, kind of, kind of like a porn romance. So there's a difference. There, you know? <laughs> porn communication romance. Never <laughs> uh, tell you about that that the the, um, the short film I did called The Money Shot. No. Oh, God. Oh, oh no, hold on. So, so right, real quick. Go ahead. Do we have time? Do we have time? Yeah, we, sure. I, okay. All right. So it was a short, I made the short film and I, I wrote it. It was about this guy. It starts out with, um, uh, you see a girl walking into her boyfriend's uh, apartment and, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. That's not, it starts out with the, the boyfriend coming out, sitting in front of the TV and you're behind the TV and you can hear porn and he starts to masturbate. But you, you see him from the chest up. You don't see anything, right? You know, because right. the TV's blocking it. So the next day, same deal. This time he's eating cereal while he's doing it, you know. <laughs> and uh, third day, his girlfriend comes in and, and, and she says, come on, Michael. And he's in the shower. So she goes over and she sees a, a tape, a videotape. And this is how old this movie is. And she pushes it in and you can hear the porn and she's watching it. And she's like, oh, my God. And he comes in and he's embarrassed. He says, oh, no, turn it off. She goes, no, I didn't know you watched this stuff. And he goes, he's really embarrassed. She goes, sit down. I want to see it. So they watch it. And, and she goes, and then you hear the, the, uh, the money shot. And, uh, and, and, she, and she says, uh, and he goes, turn it off. She goes, no, I want to see what happens next. <laughs> and he goes, I don't know. Nobody's ever watched it past here, right? So, so, so they watch it, and then they start, you hear them, and they, and they go out to lunch, and, they, they, and then they go, and they visit his parents, and they fall in love, and they get married. This all happens over, you know, with flashes forward. And, and so it's like it's a romantic ending. And so she leaves, and the next day he comes out again. He turns it on, and he starts looking at it, and it doesn't turn him on anymore. Because he knows these are these are people, so it kind of you push through the whole thing of what pornography is about, and then you see that they're really people. So then he flips on CNN. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, but I it's, got it, to the point where porn, I go, hey, that looks like. Wait a minute, these are like my kids. I oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, that's me. The whole the, the, that's what I try to do with the, the talk show. You know, I mean, obviously I, without the the wah wah music in the background, but you know, I, I try. I try Maybe to you ought to try that. <laughs> That was another joke I used to do. It was yeah. about like the difference between the, the the porn like in a Holiday Inn as opposed to porn you look at Brent. Because right. the Holiday Inn porn was all scrambled and you're looking at it sideways trying to discern if you're getting turned on or not. Is that a thigh or is that the sofa? I can't tell because it's a... But and you could always tell the music for that was always never. It was like... But good porn was like... Like Seinfeld. Right? And it's it's so funny too because if you think about it, so like I remember, did you ever catch your parents having sex? Yes. Oh, I have got and something my dad charmingly referred to as the we were just playing wheelbarrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember I was like nine, and my it was a Saturday, and I'm walking around, and my parents' doors are closed. I'm like, I wonder what's going on. And I go down to the door, and I put my ear to the door, and inside I hear. There's your callback right there. Anyway, so. Hey now, uh, hey now. Well, listen, we got to do this again. This is fun. That was fun, man. Thank yeah. you for having me on. Appreciate well, it. Thanks for doing it. I, I anytime, man. Anytime. The name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.